This is the podcast formerly known as the No Name General Aviation Podcast, episode number three, Don't Make Me Laugh, with Dave Higdon, Jeb Burnside, and Jack Hodgson, recorded Tuesday, September 19, 2006. Show notes for this episode can be found at www.aroundthefield.net. So starting now, the name of this podcast is, and now the drum roll really comes up to full critical missions such as finding lost calm down now critical (laughs) missions won the unlimited gold at 481.619 miles an hour wow Well, hello, everybody. Here we are back again with episode number three of uh, our general aviation podcast. Sitting around the virtual hangar, we have Dave Higdon from Wichita, Kansas. Dave's an aviation photographer and journalist. Hey, Dave. Good evening, everybody. How you doing? Everybody enjoying the fall weather? How's the weather out there in, in, in Wichita? Well, it's actually the best flying weather that we've had in months. Crisp, crisp cool, blue smooth air, the kind of stuff that makes you want to go out and put around. What's cool. the wind like out there? Well, that's the been the real treat. After gusting in the 30s most of the weekend, it's been down into single digits the last couple of days. Well, that's good. That's a real rarity here. Cool. That and the other voice you're hearing around uh, our virtual uh, hangar table here is Jeb Burnside. Jeb's uh, in Springfield, Virginia, and he is the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. He's also a one of the contributing editors. I think that's the right title for AvWeb uh, in their every other week business section. Hi, Jeb. Good evening, folks. How, how is everybody? I'm doing great. I, although I have to tell you, maybe I shouldn't speak for Dave, but I will. We, we were feeling a little jealous uh, over the weekend because we were slaving over our keyboards here, you know, doing our various real-world jobs and planning for this podcast. Uh, and, and, and Dave informs me that you actually got to spend Saturday at the airport hanging out, having fun with your airplane and, and whatnot. Well, I did. Uh, actually, I spent a little bit of both Saturday and Sunday at the airport. Um, wasn't necessarily hanging out with the airplane, although it was it was close at hand all the time. I've got a, a sickness, an illness that I've developed recently, which is trying to restore old motorcycles. Yeah. And my hangar makes a great workshop, and I have too many of them out there occupying space. So I was tilting at those windmills over the weekend. I see. Yeah, to, to hear him talk, it's gotten to the point now where he's got to rearrange motorcycles to get the uh, debonair out. So. Well, I have a yeah, I have a forty thousand dollar BMW sitting out in the weather because I don't have room to put on my motorcycle. So, I don't I don't know what's wrong with me. <laughs> Too much time on high altitude is the only thing I can think of. And oxygen my name, can cure that. Oxygen can cure that. And my name is Jack. My, okay, guys, I'm going to introduce myself. Mm. My name is Jack Hodgson. Uh, I'm a freelance aviation writer and podcast producer. I'm up here in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, A little bit later on in the show, we'll tell you all the relevant uh, web addresses if you want to get in touch with any of us. But but let's move on with uh, some of the uh, stuff we wanted to talk about tonight. Well, now here's the the bit of the big news that's not really that important. Those of you who've been listening to this podcast uh, uh, in its first two episodes know that we've been trying to come up with a permanent name for this podcast. The three of us have spent a lot of time over the last four weeks sending back and forth like I'm hundreds of emails. Now, Jack, let me interrupt. When you, when you mix this, you've got to put in a, a, a drum roll. It starts very low in volume. Ah, and okay. It starts to peak as you as you as we talk about this. Okay, so go ahead. Let's, so don't drum, let me interrupt. So the drum, 
the drum rolls back there. Um, I mean, we, we were sending emails, we had conference calls, we were brainstorming left and right, uh, trying to come up with a name. I mean, we ended up with a really big, you guys will, will agree with me, a really big list of possibilities, most mm-hmm. of which were really pretty bad. Uh, but there were a few of them we liked. Uh, and you said I, nothing with which I disagree. There were a few of them that we liked. Some of them we liked a lot, but they weren't quite right for what we were going for in this podcast. So we took those, we set those aside, we saved them away for, for future use. We also got some good ideas from our listeners, and we want to thank those of you who sent in your ideas. Some of them were really good, but again, not quite right. So we kept on brainstorming, and we finally came up with a name that we think does some justice to what we're trying to do with this podcast. So definitely so, reflects the nature of our personality. That's right. So, so starting now, as effective immediately... The name of this podcast is, and now the drum roll really comes up to full blast, the, the podcast is now called The Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast. And uh, we're pretty pleased with that. We, we like this name for a bunch of reasons. A couple of them are that we think the word uncontrolled says something about the kind of freewheeling, unscripted thing that we're going for here. Uh, also, in real life, uncontrolled airspace is where many of the rules don't apply, and we like that notion too. So that's the permanent name of this podcast. We've already set up a new website, which is, of course, called the website address is www.uncontrolledairspace.com. And we have a new email address, and that is podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com. The old email address and the old website will continue to exist for a while, um, if that's what you're referring to. But eventually they'll go back to their original uses and, and will just be residing at uncontrolledairspace.com. And one little bit of technical business here. For those of you who subscribe to our podcast through the no-name general aviation RSS feed via iTunes, um, you should continue to get the podcast through that old name for a little while without changing anything. But eventually, and this will be like a few episodes down the road, we're going to do it under both names for a little while. So you'll be able to use the old one for a little while. But eventually you'll want to resubscribe under the new name. So you want to go looking into your podcast portal, whether it's iTunes or whatnot, for the new name and resubscribe. And I would interject that this is the only time they'll have to resubscribe. We're not going to go through this name change thing again. No, absolutely no. not. Uh, uncontrolled airspace is it, and that's what we're going to go with. If there were any moves to change it, we'd have to kill someone. That's right. right. That's right. So thank you to you guys, two guys, and thank you to our listeners who helped us out. And everyone out there, uh, tell all your friends about the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast. The other little bit of, uh, of housekeeping business I have here is uh, sort of related to what I was just talking about. I just want to urge everyone, the best way to get this podcast is to subscribe through something like the iTunes Music Store or Podcast Alley or one of the other podcasting portals. If you haven't done that, we urge you to do so. It will cause this podcast to automatically be downloaded to your computer every time there's a new episode. And you want to do that because you don't want to miss a single episode. So make sure you subscribe somewhere. Uh, it makes it a lot easier. So let's just dive right into the stories of, of the week here. The, I suppose the most important story, I sort of expected there to be more about this story in the news over the past uh, couple of weeks, and I've heard almost nothing. We had to dig a little bit to find more information. Um, two weeks ago, President Bush announced that he planned to nominate former head of the Federal Highway Administration, uh, a woman by the name of Mary Peters, to be the next Secretary of Transportation. Just a little background, she left the Highway Administration in 2005. Since that time, she served as a senior vice president at a company called HDR, 
which is described by the White House as being a major engineering firm. Prior to 2001, she was involved with the Transportation Department uh, in Arizona. So she's been nominated, and apparently they're going to hold a congressional hearing sometime later this week, maybe starting tomorrow. It's tomorrow, right. Yeah. And I know from talking with you guys offline that you have some some thoughts on this subject. But before we get into the nitty-gritty of Ms. Peters and this appointment, let me step back and ask you a slightly different kind of question on the subject. And that's this. Why does your typical Cessna or Piper or Bonanza pilot, who does most of his flying on the weekend to get $100 hamburgers, why does that pilot care about whoever is the Secretary of Transportation? I mean, the White House cabinet room is a long way away from my local grass strip. Why do I care? Because that individual sets policy and provides leadership in all transportation modes. He or she, depending on their dedication to transportation to the Department of Transportation and its various agencies would be one to advocate in the cabinet room at the White House on behalf of various programs or conversely to acquiesce in that same room to proposals which may or may not be in the in the best interests uh, of the various transportation segments uh, uh, for which he or she is responsible. So it, it, to me it's, it's a matter of uh, uh, is there leadership at the top? Is there uh, uh, interest in actually serving those various industries? Well, and we got to remember the Federal Aviation Administration is part of the Department of Transportation. The FAA doesn't have a direct voice to the president or White House policymakers. The FAA has to depend on the office of the Secretary of Transportation to be that representation. And just to give you an example of why the SEC dot is important to us uh, grassroots flyers is uh, Norm Mineta, the uh, much lauded former Secretary of Transportation, was a very strong advocate for general aviation, both in Congress and at DOT uh, under this president. And one of the positions that he took was to resist pressures to uh, implement a user fee system for funding the FAA and the air traffic system. What we're liable to get from this new nominee, we really can't say yet because we don't know. She hasn't spoken on it. She hasn't spoken in a hearing yet. And, of course, all the aviation groups are busy trying to stay on the good side and hoping to uh, educate her to their particular perspective. Uh, We do know that when she was at the Federal Highway Administration that she advocated for uh, using toll roads or toll fees on highways as a way to raise money for maintenance. Now, all of us who drive cars uh, should know that you pay a fuel tax when you buy gasoline for your car, just like we pay fuel tax when we buy gasoline for our aircraft. And that's supposed to be how maintenance, upkeep, and advances are funded. So the idea of a user fee system, which general aviation has been fighting like crazy for about every other year for the last 20 years, uh, is something where the strength of leadership and attitude of the Secretary of Transportation can be key in that fight. Okay. Exactly right. So first of all, is this a done deal? Is she going to be confirmed? Probably. Uh, um, Her her initial hearing is scheduled for... uh, Tomorrow, and we're, we're recording this obviously on a Tuesday evening, tomorrow being Wednesday, September 20, that hearing is scheduled for 2.30 p.m. in the Senate. 
So this normally, will be largely done by the time people have a chance to listen to this. No, right. no. I normally, what I was what I was going to say is normally what happens is, uh, in this case, the Senate Commerce Full Committee will hold a hearing. They will take testimony from, uh, I'm sure, Ms. Peters. She will uh, answer various questions in a timely manner. The committee may hold another hearing to hear from other parties, uh, industry groups, whomever, and then they will make a motion. Someone will make a motion in a committee meeting to. Uh, approve that nomination and forward it to the full Senate. I would guess that given the uh, uh, the calendar, and by that I mean the pending November election and everybody's desire to get the heck out of Washington and go home and campaign, that this would be uh, accomplished by the time Congress adjourns, and I don't have a current uh, target date for that. Well, their target is to adjourn by the end of September, whether they make that depends on how efficient the, they are. It be the first time in several years. Yeah, yeah that would be momentous in itself for yeah. the Congress. Of course, given how little Congress has managed to accomplish so far, they may actually accomplish the one thing by getting out on schedule. <laughs> now, the uh, the aviation, I'm not saying all of them, but at least some of the aviation organizations have what I would characterize as cautiously welcomed her. I mean, is that is that your impression, too? Yeah. That, that's, that's damning with faint praise, but that's accurate. Uh-huh. It almost, I mean, I was reading it, and maybe I'm just reading a lot into it. What I read, what I saw between the lines there was, we're going to have to work with this this woman, so let's yeah. kind of, you know, right. offer. They're basically acknowledging that her aviation background, from their perspective, is somewhere between nil and zero. Yeah. So for them to have any hopes or expectations of sympathy or empathy on her part in policy decisions... They need to go to work and enlighten her on what it is that's important to them, whether it's the Air Transport Association or the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, EAA, Gamma, NBAA. They're all going to be taking their turns at trying to get an audience with the new secretary. Some of this is underway already. Yeah. Yeah. Well, moving on to a new subject then, uh, speaking of national aviation policy, here's one for you. This is from a story in AvWeb. This is a, a... U.S. Army Colonel Don Hazelwood was quoted in AvWeb. He said, The FAA needs to move more quickly to develop rules that would allow unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs, into the national aerospace system. That's our airspace, where we all fly. The technology is quickly improving, he said. Accident rates are down, and the unmanned systems are proving their safety and utility under extreme conditions in Iraq. Critical missions such as finding lost... Calm down now. Critical <laughs> missions, such as finding lost children and fighting forest fires, could benefit from UAV deployment now, he said. Uh, the FAA should set a goal to integrate the aircraft into the NAS within two years, he said. So Dave's chuckling in the background. I mean, let me clarify one thing here. Are we talking about remotely piloted vehicles, or are we talking about autonomous vehicles? I think that's unspecified. It could go either way. I think they're talking about the whole enchilada. Really? Well, that's very interesting. I I had assumed all along that they were talking primarily about remotely piloted vehicles. That's going to be the initial stage, because the uh, remotely piloted vehicles are the ones that that are already deployed, for example, along the U.S.-Mexico border in an attempt to help uh, stem the tide of illegal crossings in the United States. The move into autonomous vehicles is not going to be far behind because 
if you've got a grid to search for a missing child, which is not an everyday occurrence, but certainly a worthy cause, rather than have a, a young man sitting there at a control panel trying to fly a grid, you can program the vehicle to fly the grid and key up the operator if they sent something worth examining, and he can take over from there. But I'm not sure that the colonel doesn't have part of this cart on the wrong side of the horse, because one of the issues that uh, that's caused great hesitation about unleashing UAVs in the national airspace is their limited ability to see and avoid other traffic. It's not like that guy sitting at the console has the ability to look out the windshield the same way a human pilot does in a regularly piloted aircraft. So uh, certainly rules are going to have to be written and policy set to integrate UAVs in with the rest of the, the, the airspace. But at the same time, I think the technology's got to come along to the point where those vehicles are better able to detect not just uh, transponder recording aircraft, but all aircraft. Because remember, we've got a, a substantial number of machines out there for which a transponder is not required, particularly here in our uncontrolled airspace. <laughs> Jeb? I can't add much to that. I, I would not look forward to uh, a great influx of uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, which is the term uh, UAV. I would not look forward to it. I, I think it's probably inevitable, but I think there are a number of problems, a number of uh, hurdles that those who advocate UAVs uh, have, have not really thought through completely. And I just I just find it an unproven technology or perhaps an unproven application of technology. Well, and I'd like to back up one thing that the, uh, the, the colonel was trying to impress the largely uneducated media with, and that's the great performance of UAVs in, in the Iraqi airspace, which <laughs> in his mind equates to the class Bravo airspace that we fly in here. Or, or even more restricted. Even more restricted. Let, let's look at a couple of things here. Uh, how much free-form GA traffic is there in the Iraqi airspace right now? Right. Uh, how much of it is controlled? Well, somewhere about 101% of it is in the active airspace control system with the military air traffic controllers. So to say that they work really well in Class Bravo is to ignore the fact that Class Bravos are a small percentage of the national airspace system here in the continental U.S., and that's that's a very good point. A, a corollary point, of course, would be that the, the aircraft, the UAVs, would be used over or near met large metropolitan areas. Well, gee, what would they be used for? Uh, about the only thing I can think of would be surveillance. And and we can talk till the cows come home about how appropriate or how necessary that might be. The punchline need more surveillance. Exactly. The punchline I I have though is that their ability to see and avoid other aircraft is nil, non-existent, zip, nada. The military, of course, would, would respond, well, what we'll have to do is we'll have to make a TFR around the, uh, uh, around the UAV, uh, and, and there we go. That's a very slippery slope, and we've already got enough TFRs bouncing around out there that are not even security-related. Are, are, uh, Jeb, are you speculating that that's what they would do, or, or have they said that? That's, that's, well, that's been their track record th so That's far. been their track record. That's what they're doing around the Mexican-U.S. border now with respect to UAV operations. They've created a, uh, I don't know ex its exact dimensions, but it's not an insignificant amount of airspace uh, to, in which to operate these UAVs. 
I'm sorry? It, 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 the airspace that they carved out started out much bigger than what they're using right yeah. now. Yeah. Uh, originally, they were trying to carve out a ridiculous amount of airspace as a no-fly zone around their UAVs along the Mexican border. After they got some operational experience with it, the FAA dialed back that mileage some to something mm -hmm. more reasonable. But TFR, is, like Jeb says, is going to be the military solution. And think about those nice guys in the air traffic control consoles and the Class Bs. Why are Class Bs Class Bs? Because they're the busiest airspace in the country. So what do you want inside a Class B? Remotely piloted vehicle or an autonomously piloted vehicle that can't see and avoid can't right. take radio instruction, how are they going to talk to the, the, the guy that's ultimately in charge of that aircraft? Mm -hmm. uh, and if, if I and can't when... imagine a scarier place to put a UAV than in the DFW or the uh, Washington Dallas uh, Dulles, uh, uh, Class Bravo. Yeah, and, and there will be equipment failures. There have been equipment failures. And when those equipment failures occur, the UAV takes an unpredictable flight path. It's one thing to do that over Baghdad at 3 a.m. It's another to do it over Chicago at 5 p.m. Yeah. Dave, this kind of uh, segues us into a subject that you called our attention to sort of late this afternoon. And I don't have many notes here, but you, you thought we might say a few words about the only note I wrote here was next generation, quote unquote, airline traffic system. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. Man, we're like giggling a lot here today. Yeah, this, okay, go ahead. Hey, what, what's the story? Well, well, if I may lay, lay sure. that groundwork for Dave, the uh, uh, NGATS, NGATS, or the Next Generation AV Air Transportation System, is is the correct and, and official term for this. Dave's uh, slip of the tongue to make it an airline transportation system perhaps sets the stage for what he's about to say. With that, I will shut up. Well, that's just a little plagiarism on my part. I actually got to lay credit to uh, Phil Boyer and the folks at AOPA for that double entendre because uh, they're the ones that blew the whistle on the current plan that come out of this working group at 800 independents at the FAA headquarters for the next generation air transportation system. The uh, current outline, as AOPA was nice enough to point out this past week, basically straps general aviation with the requirement for quite a bit of new equipment simply to fly VFR so that the controllers and the airliners can have reporting, position reporting, velocity and direction vectors constantly updating to aircraft in the IFR system to no benefit to the VFR pilot. The aircraft that's not flying in the system is not in the system, but it's going to have to have this equipment under the current plan. They've also proposed some rather interesting ideas like flexible airspace boundaries so that as the weather goes bad, maybe the boundary of your class Bravo will expand about 20 miles so that they can better manage the quote-unquote higher-performance aircraft that are, operate in those areas. Everything about this smells like the Air Transport Association wrote it up, and everybody but the AOPA nodded and said, oh, yeah, it sounds good to us. Now let's uh, make sure everyone knows who the Air Transport Association is. The Air Transport Association represents the major airline companies, primarily the legacy companies. That's the old hands like Delta, United, Northwest. But here recently, it even includes a couple of the uh, low fare carriers like Southwest. 
I think their representation, and I don't want to set a number, but it's in single-digit companies, but they wield a lot of weight because financially they've got a lot of money to spend on lobbying. Any system that straps general aviation with new equipment requirements that doesn't bring a direct benefit to us, that doesn't improve our safety or margins, that adds restrictions to where we can go and a sliding scale of where we can and can't go VFR is a classic setup for restricting us out of big chunks of airspace and more and more as time goes by. You're going to hear a lot more about this in the coming months because AOPA is only the most vocal of the general aviation groups to, to object, but they're not the only ones that have got people working on this saying, wait a bloody minute here. So where are we in the process here? I mean, do we have some time to speak out about it, or is it going to happen soon? Well, the, the good thing about something like this is it will take the FAA about twice as long as it would take any other agency to, to pull this rabbit out of the hat. As an aside, while we were talking, I just happened to poke over to the Air Transport Association website. They have about 20 trunk major carriers, I should really? say, as their, uh, as their members uh, from uh, U.S. Airways to Alaska Airlines and Continental Delta, Evergreen, etc. They're... Uh, Got about the cargo boys. Yeah. Their uh, tagline on their website is, quote, making airlines a national priority, unquote. There we go. So, kind of tells you where they're headed, or where they're coming from. What's that website's address? Is it just ata.org.com? Well, there's it's airlines.org, and then it's uh, air-transport.org. Okay. But basically, airlines.org will get you where you need to go. Got it. Well, given that general aviation flies more hours to more places with more aircraft, I think keeping general aviation a national priority at least equal in access and influence to the major air carriers ought to be our national priority. Well, well said. Here, here. We got a lot of uh, great emails from our listeners. Our, our our audience seems to be growing at a at a nice little rate. I mean, not we're not talking like huge hits here, but it grew about ten or fifteen percent from one to number two. So that's real nice. And a number of people sent us emails that as we asked them to, and and that was real gratifying. I wanted to kind of read a couple of little clips from a few of these emails I thought were Absolutely. kind of funny. The first one is uh, from Rick Reynolds in Wisconsin. Rick, <laughs> Rick, of course, is a colleague of ours at uh, AirVenture Today, the EAA publication during the Oshkosh fly-in. Rick is also a year-round uh, full-time staff member at EAA. He wrote in his email, he said, I must say I am impressed. Very good banter, guys. Now, okay, is it just me, or does that sound like he's a little surprised, like maybe he didn't think we had it in us or something like that, you know? I, yeah. I don't know. No, see, I'm going to give him a tinge credit. of jealousy. Uh, you think, huh? Maybe, huh? Well, it's, it, and it's one thing to do this unscripted at beer 30 after working the show all day. It's another thing to actually do it on demand. So, uh-huh. you know, if, if, if we sound good to, you know, other people as well, then, you know, maybe we're not just talking through our hats here. No, I'm sure he actually, he said, he's actually sent us a couple of emails saying some nice things about what we're doing, and we appreciate his uh, his encouragement. We're, yeah. we're actually are going to hear from Rick Reynolds uh, a little bit later on in the podcast. Rick and another <laughs> colleague, uh, James Winbrandt, are both uh, musicians, and they contributed to us a little uh, piece of music that we're going to use as our uh, tag at the very end of the show. It's a rendition of a song <laughs> that they created called The Air Venture Blues, and so you'll hear that at the very end of the show tonight. We got another email 
email from Joe Travis in Louisiana. Joe writes, Hi guys, just found the podcast and enjoyed the first two episodes. I'm located in northeast Louisiana. My airport is MLU, and I'm just starting my training. I stopped by the local center this week to make my first contact with the program and pick up my training materials. You were spot on in your first episode about training centers. A bit run down, receptionist, not very friendly, etc. Not a great first impression, and I can see how one would be turned off by stopping in. Almost a hurdle to get over to start training. On the other hand, he writes, the program director was great, spent a fair amount of time explaining the program and his training philosophy. I certainly felt a lot better about it after spending some time with him. And uh, so that's... Oh, way to go. Yeah, yeah. And, and good for him to, to stick it out. That's really what you need to do. Uh, you need to kind of break through that that initial shell of of... I don't know, grumpiness or whatever it is. Um, because once you get through, it's really yeah. a bunch of nice people. Yeah, it's uh, just some of the nicest out there. Joe also was one of the people who submitted a couple of name ideas um, that we really liked. Uh, we appreciate that. Like I said, we saved them away for some other projects in the future. So thanks to Joe. Finally, we got an email from Steve Tupper in Michigan. Steve actually sent us two uh, pretty long emails with some really good suggestions about our podcast and about ways that we can go. He also had contributed my favorite line um, in any of the emails we received. He wrote, in case it helps you in formulating your game plan, I responded positively because of the authority and grizzled pragmatism that I heard on the cast. I get the yeah, sense. I'm the pragmatic one. Higgins, the uh, grizzled one. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Steve wrote, I get the sense that you guys have a much stronger knowledge base than any other hangar flying format shows out there. And uh, so we appreciate it. Yeah, authority and grizzled pragmatism. I really considered that as possibly being a name for the podcast for a few minutes. <laughs> But uh, and uh, so and I need to point out that Steve is a podcaster as well. Um, his podcast is called Airspeed, and if you're interested in in finding other aviation podcasts, you can find his at www.airspeedonline.blogspot.com, or just search on the iTunes Music Store for a podcast called Airspeed by Steve Tupper. I've had a chance to listen to a few of his recent episodes. Um, one recent episode, he had a really nice interview with a member of the Canadian Snowbirds team. And in another uh, episode of his podcast, he had a really nice piece about introducing your kids to aviation. So, uh, well, Way to go, Steve. Yeah, good good for him. Yeah. So, Appreciate the cross-pollination. There's a bunch of good aviation podcasts out there, and I, and I think we're going to point to some of, the, some of the good ones that we discover each time we do one of these. So uh, thanks to everyone. Everyone who sent their uh, in their emails, we really appreciate them. They they are a lot of fun to read, and we hope that you'll keep them coming. And give them that new address again. That, and the, thank you for reminding me. The new get, new address is podcasts at uncontrolledairspace.com. Back to the news. Uh, this one will get you guys giggling again too. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> In the first two episodes uh, of this podcast, we talked uh, a bit about the controller shortage. Well, I guess the FAA must have been listening because they've released a plan to hire more of them. GeneralAviationNews.com had a story that uh, had the following quote in it. The FAA plans to hire nearly 12,000 new air traffic controllers over the next 10 years. The agency recently released an updated air traffic controller workforce plan designed to address anticipated retirement and replacement of controllers over the next decade. The revised They're only going to lose 13,000 over the next 10 years, so that's <laughs> yeah. probably a, a par for the course. I'm sorry for That's okay. They said the revised document based on updated traffic forecasts, experience with productivity increases, and actual retirements called for the FAA to hire 
uh, more than 11,800 new controllers. Okay, and my initial response to this is a 10-year plan. Come on, I mean, I, I don't know. I've, I'm just always really suspicious. Maybe it's my cynical nature. All right, but you know, a 10-year plan. Who the heck can plan anything 10 years out in the future? We've got a, a government that works on two and four-year cycles, and oh well, if that. you know, yeah, that long. Well, yeah. for one thing, they they can look at their workforce roles right now. And with their own retirement requirements, project out how their retirements are going to start to fall based on when their employees become, when the controllers become eligible. That's one mark. And when they have to leave based on mandatory retirement age at the other end of it. So there's a window there at which these guys can stay around between when they're eligible and when they have to go. And working from those numbers, uh, the FAA is able to come up with a projected need. They also have to factor in attrition for the guys who get disgusted about pulling their hair out and decide that they'd rather have hair than go bald and go looking for another job. The non-shocking part about this is that this is an old number. Yeah. 11,000 and change yeah. is what's been floated around for two years, and we've been hearing how they're going to have a plan, they're going right. to have a plan. Right. They are already behind on their last plan. Right. So I, I, I'm like you, Jack. It's hard not to be a little cynical when we had a plan a couple of years ago. We had an acknowledgement of the coming need, a ballpark on the numbers, and the very next year they set up a hiring plan for that fiscal year that sold short what they needed just to keep up for that fiscal year. Mm-hmm. That's no way to run a railroad. It's an even worse way to run an air traffic control system. Yeah. So I'll be less cynical if they actually start to work to the numbers and bring in new controller trainees at the rate that matches the annual attrition. And right now, they're not doing that. To put some flesh on, on the bones that Dave just threw out there, uh, the FAA has long been playing a numbers game, basically a shell game, in the way it counts controllers, in the way it counts new hires, in the way it uh, projects needs into the future. And, of course, the FAA, is, 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 as are most federal agencies, very good in, in manipulating its numbers. And it counts on Congress and other watchers to not have a very long institutional memory about what it has said in the past. And an even shorter attention span. Exactly. And given that uh, this is the same agency that was knowingly violating its own staffing rules in several towers around the country, uh, only to have that that little bit of uh, uh, shell game work, as Jeb put it, come to the surface because of a fatal airline crash, Let's, uh, let's, let's use an old Reagan quote. Trust but verify. Well, I want to see the numbers every year. Yeah, and, and of course the airline crash we're discussing is the uh, one in Lexington, Kentucky right. a it's month or so there. ago that uh, killed 49 people when an RJ crashed uh, shortly after trying to take off. Yeah. The smoking gun, if you will, from that, that accident was that uh, there was only one controller in the Lexington Tower when the FAA's own rules required there to be two. Uh, it's more than a little questionable as to whether that has any impact whatsoever on the, the probable cause of the accident. But nevertheless, there are those such as NACA who will make an issue of it. Well, and it is telling, it is absolutely telling about the difference between what the FAA says needs to be done and what the FAA will actually do in a bind. Well, there's that, and, and um, of course, you know, timing is everything, and, and they don't make this announcement until they're under the gun from that accident uh, on controller staffing issues. So, draw your own conclusions. Mm-hmm. 
Let's see, here we go. Chicago's Mayor Daley has accepted a, uh, I believe it's like a $1.1 million fine as a punishment, quote-unquote punishment, for bulldozing Meigs Field a few years ago. Huh? How do you like that? Oh, boy. Well, I'm glad I don't live in Chicago for a number of reasons, not least of which now would be having to having to shoulder my share of that $1.1 million. Let's be, let's be square here. He was the city of Chicago is shouldering a $33,000 fine. That's the slap on the wrist for bulldozing Meg's Field in the middle of the night in March of 2003. Right. Because the uh, mayor for life, Daley Jr., used airport funds to pay for the contractors to bulldoze the runway, he's having to repay that. That's where the million dollars mm-hmm. comes in. Yeah, that's then that was you throw a good point. A couple of hundred thousand dollars in legal fees that they spent fighting uh, the enforcement, and you're looking at about 1.3 total that this is going to wind up costing them. 33,000 in fines, a million repaid to the airport uh, uh, fund, and what they've already spent on legal fees. I don't think that he's going to lose a second sleep over this because yeah. he won. Yeah, and, and at that's the end my of the day he won. And that's my take on it too. Is that is that you know the news story I saw about this sort of tried to characterize it as you know he's getting his just punishment. You know, I mean he's like having to own up and having. To, I mean, I, I stand corrected. It's not a completely a fine, but nevertheless he had to suffer the you know accept the consequences of this whole thing. But it just doesn't seem to me. I mean, I mean if if I'm if I'm I hate to say this out loud. If I'm Mayor Daly, I'm thinking, I'm I'm a winner. Good. This is yeah, yeah. Don't, yeah. don't please don't throw me in that briar patch. It's it's uh, thirty three grand for for shutting down a, a what is essential what was essentially a major reliever airport uh, anywhere in the country, much less uh, one of the top largest well, one of the five largest cities in the country. Thirty three thousand dollars is is chump change. Mm-hmm. There should be a, a a much more substantial fine for something like that. Meg's didn't wasn't the best airport in the world. It wasn't one of my favorites, but it was uh, insanely convenient and uh, was very popular. And it's a shame that it's gone. Yeah. Well, and the most we can hope for out of this whole fiasco is that well, two things. One that this fiasco will add to the. Uh, Add to the dissatisfaction with the uh, mayor for life daily too, and maybe change the outcome the next time he runs for re-election. The second is that it will give other municipalities pause before they do anything equally insane. Because I have a feeling that if this happens again, that thirty-three thousand dollars is is going to be going to be looking pretty attractive. For the next city that pulls this stunt, because the uh, the gloves are off. And I, and the I would take. The FAA has shown that they can force this through. The FAA has shown just enough spine to stick with the thirty-three grand. I, I would take the contrary view, and the contrary view is to any municipality, thirty-three thousand dollars to close an airport, bulldoze the runway, and start laying the foundation for a new strip mall is pocket change. $33,000 uh, $33, fine plus, yeah, they they will look at that uh, precedent, and it is a precedent now, they will look at the Megs and Chicago precedent and say to themselves, hmm, uh, that little airport out there uh, on the edge of town, we could, we could make a new Walmart there. And uh, I, I don't have a warm fuzzy uh, from any of this, and I think uh, no, no, there's no uh, warm fuzzy, the, the, the FAA 
my my impression is that the FAA did everything it could to uh, to levy a fine and, and to punish Chicago and his honor uh, in this event in this endeavor, but it its rules and its statutes and its penalties don't have the teeth that they should. Uh, skip to Congress. Congress is not about to give FAA the teeth that it should have to keep these airports open, because well, all politics is local. Millions more. It could have, well, I don't the, have the authority to make it much more expensive. That's that's what I'm use it. That's what I'm saying, uh, and Congress is not going to give them that authority because all politics is local, and those local politicians who are serving in Congress would not necessarily want their municipality to have to pay a fine to close a, a quote underused unquote airport. Yeah. Well, on to a subject that is a little bit warm and fuzzy. Uh, is uh, Last weekend was the Reno Air Races uh, out in Nevada. Um, I, I'm assuming that you guys have been to the Reno Air Races at, at least I, once. I have to confess, I have not. I, really? I was yeah. Just, just uh, earlier in the week, though, chatting with a buddy of mine who uh, works for one of those no-name uh, airlines, and we were definitely talking about getting some passes for next year's and uh, jetting out there and uh, uh, doing that right. He's never been either. And, let uh, me let me tell you my Reno Air Races story because back when I lived in California many years ago, and Reno was about I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, and Reno is about a three four hour drive up from the Bay, and I hadn't been, and quite frankly, the idea didn't really charge me up. I mean, I thought. You know, this is not the kind of flying that I thought I'd be interested in. And but then one year I said, you know, I'm just going to go and check it out. I'll take, I'll make the drive and uh, spend the night in Reno and gamble, and then go see the air races. And I'll watch a couple races, and I'll have done that, and it'll be interesting. Well, I'll tell you, I got up there, and you get into the grandstands, and it is thrilling. I mean, these airplanes are going really fast, really close to the ground. I mean, zooming around right in front of you. Kind of like my typical landing. Yeah, I don't know about that, but it. I, I just was thrilled and just couldn't take my eyes off it. I had such a good time the, the, the first time I went to the air races, and then I went a couple more years after that. that I just would urge anyone who, who is in that area, and I mean, unfortunately, it's just passed for this year, but if you have an opportunity, go to the Reno Air Races. Uh, and, I, I would echo that. Everyone I know who has been there... Uh, tries to go back year after year after year. It's not unlike uh, uh, Sun and Fun or, or uh, Oshkosh or some of the other big aviation events. Yeah, so it's a lot of fun up there in the desert. Well, and this year was particularly noteworthy because although we had a couple of racers break their engines in the heat of competition, uh, everybody got down intact, mm -hmm. nobody crashed, uh, there were no bad landings. And Mike Brown... In race 232, September Fury, that's a Hawker Sea Fury, won the unlimited gold there a couple of days ago at 481.619 miles wow. an hour. Wow. Second place was, was barely even in the same lap. That's Mike Jackson flying Dreadnought at 453.559 miles per hour. The... Uh, only two inline engine aircraft, uh, Cloud Dancer and Strega. Uh, Strega is a regular there. Uh, both of these are Mustangs. They both had to declare Maydays because they broke an engine and didn't finish the race. Hmm. John Sharp's nemesis was really, really playing hard in the uh, sport class, 360 miles an hour. Rod Von Grote, 358 miles an hour in the sport class. 
even the T6s are really screaming this year. 235.609 miles an hour <laughs> for Nick Macy in race six is six cat in the gold race for the T6. To round it out, Mariah, uh, that's race 95, flown by Gary Hubler, 257 miles an hour. Now, that's a 100-horse engine wow. in those Formula One airplanes. That's a Continental O200 screaming at the top of its lungs. In the <laughs> biplane, cl- biplane class, Tom Aberley's Phantom just slapped J- Jeffrey Lowe 251.958 miles an hour versus 231 for second place to Miss Guiana. And in the jet class, this was an L-39 race, basically. 470 miles an hour won it with uh, John Penny, American Spirit, flown by Rick Van Dam, finished second. Everybody got to come home in one piece. All the airplanes were intact. The crowd had a hell of a time. Dave, uh, congratulations, guys, on another Dave, great go year. back. Go back to the the unlimited gold and the jet race, and tell me what the mile an hour spread was. <laughs> I wondered if anybody had picked that up. September Fury took the unlimited gold race Sunday at four eighty one point six one nine. Uh huh. The L thirty nine race in the jet class, a meager four hundred and seventy, eighteen mile or eleven miles an hour slower. Yeah. See, I can class. understand that though. Uh, listeners should know that that one of, and and this jet class thing is is I guess apparently new. I, they didn't fly jets. It, it's it's newer. It's not. This is not the first year they've done. Yeah. Jets. Because traditionally, the thing about the Reno Air Races was that it was all piston aircraft, and uh, and that was sort of its thing. And and that's that was sort of the big limiter is that you that that we've sort of maxed out the technology on how powerful a a piston air uh, engine you can build that. You know, has the right weight to thrust ratio and so forth, and and that's one of the things that makes it particularly interesting from an engineering standpoint. But if you if you're familiar with the ground that they fly over up there, I can I I'm not at all surprised that the jets aren't really able to take advantage of of you know their their advantages. If you can picture this, it's it's in this valley that's a, a about an hour's drive, 45 minute drive north of actual Reno, and it's a Reno Stead Airport. Uh, which I guess is a former Stead, some sort of military base, but it's been a private GA airport for for a long time now, and it's it's well, on the. Been racing there since '64. Yeah, and it's uh, so the the grandstands and the airport ramp is on the on the west side of the field, and and then you're you're looking out across the the primary runway, uh, along across this big desert valley, it's sort of a big gentle bowl of a valley and and the far side of this valley is i don't know must be two three four maybe even five miles away and and then the race course is basically a big circle in this in this bowl of a valley and the the smaller planes with the smaller engines have a smaller circle they don't quite go to the far side of the valley but the big the unlimiteds and i would imagine the jets go way to the far side of the valley yeah they they run the big lap and uh, but I, i can easily imagine that a jet even though a jet, you know, flat-out drag race is going to, going to, you know, kick butt, it's got to maneuver this circle and go around these pylons and not hit the ground or the mountains. And uh, so, uh, well, as as of Tuesday, September nineteenth, those of you that are thinking about this, got three hundred and fifty-seven days to make your plan <laughs> to make it to Reno next year. Be September twelfth through the sixteenth, two thousand seven, at Stead Field again. That'll be the forty fourth annual. 
I've been trying to make it out there to shoot from the pylons for years. With a little luck, 2007 will be my year. There you go. Okay. Well, once again, we're, we're, we're beginning to use up our allotted time here. I know you guys are looking at this uh, this uh, little list of story ideas that we have here. Anything else that jumps out at you you want to touch on before we uh, we close this thing up? Well, we got word here just as we were going on the air, as such as it is, that the folks out in Colorado at Adam Aircraft uh, this afternoon received their production certificate for the A500. That clears them to produce the airplane, and and they've got their type certificate, so they should be able to start delivering here pretty soon. Cessna's Mustang Very Light Jet got its flying papers uh, a little over a week ago, so that's good news there in two spots, push-me-pull-you pistons and very light jets. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything you want to pull out of this list? The movie Flyboys opens this weekend. Mm -hmm. Very well done. World War One epic, uh, based on a true story, as I understand. It was all. Uh, it was all over uh, this year's uh, air venture at Oshkosh. A lot of people were talking about it. The buzz is very good. Uh, we'd like to add to that buzz and uh, strongly suggest anyone who likes a good aviation movie to go see Flyboys. Yep. One of the things we wanted to talk about though tonight, I think, was the. Uh, the Mustang and the Eclipse and, and where all that market might be going. Have we run out of time for that? We've got a few minutes. Go for it. Well, I, I think it's going to be a very interesting uh, um, race, if you will. I think Cessna clearly has, has beaten everyone else in the VLJ market to the punch on coming up with a fully certificated airplane. Eclipse is kind of nipping at their heels. Eclipse, of course, got a provisional type certificate back in late July during the Oshkosh show. At this point, we're expecting Eclipse to get the same level of certification as the Mustang literally any day now. That's what the company keeps telling people who ask. Yeah, uh, we'll watch for that at NBAA. Well, we're, we're going to be watching for it at NBAA, uh, the NBAA annual meeting and convention next month in Orlando, and those dates are uh, October 17, 18, and 19. Well, and on the, on the Eclipse note, had a uh, release across my desk a couple of days ago that the uh, company that makes the seats for the interior, all the seats, the pilot chairs and the passenger chairs, they got certification for their seating system for the Eclipse. So that's one more little barrier crossed mm -hmm. between the provisional certification and full certification. The punchline in all of this, and, and those of us who uh, don't have the bucks uh, to plunk down for either a Mustang or an Eclipse, a lot of it's academic, but uh, it does it has have a lot to say for uh, where the future of the industry is going to be going. It will be interesting that this, the Mustang and the, and the Eclipse, in my mind, are, are designed around different philosophies. In, in, the, in the case of the Eclipse, you have a, a very well integrated, very well-defined automation system wrapped around an airplane. In the Mustang, you have a very refined airplane that's basically, uh, I won't say a cast-off, but certainly a derivative of all of the other Cessna citations that have come, built around, uh, built into a smaller package with state-of-the-art avionics in the form of the Garma 1000 suite. Uh, it will be very interesting to see which of those aircraft, and they'll be coming on the market at about the same time. The Mustang uh, should be in, in buyer's hands in January, certainly sometime in early 07. The Eclipse, uh, Eclipse production probably won't get ramped up until about that time also. So it'll be very interesting to see who takes the early lead and uh, who can 
uh, hold out uh, hold out that lead in the long run. Very interesting to watch. I look at the uh, the pending deliveries, both of these programs, as the programs finally arriving at the starting gate. Yeah. It's been a race to get to the starting gate. Now they're at the starting gate. This is where the competition really gets keen because once the airplanes are in the field, in the owner's hands, and operating in a real-world environment, all the hyperbole comes to an end. Mm-hmm. Then it's performance, reliability, dispatch reliability, maintenance, upkeep, and uh, and costs. And that's when programs are ultimately made or broken. And Cessna hasn't stepped on itself in years. <laughs> in a long, long time. Right. So... It's basically the newcomers to lose right at the moment, just in terms of advanced sales. But it's a long race, and they're just getting started. Yep. Real quickly, before we try and wrap this thing up, uh, let's see. Do you uh, what, what's what are you guys working on? Uh, what's coming up in the next couple of weeks? Well, getting ready for NBAA. Uh, looks like I'll be headed down there, Dave. You and I ought to make some plans to try to hook up. And and uh, while I'm thinking about it, we might want to even think about whether. We can or even should do uh, some sort something with the podcast from down there. I think that's a great idea. We should talk about yeah. that. The next there's uh, at the end of the month, and we've discussed this before, uh, is the uh, regional. Um, I'm sorry, Virginia Regional EAA Fly-In, and that's down at uh, is it Dinwiddie, yeah, Petersburg, Virginia, uh, Virginia Dinwiddie I, County Airport, I September that's 30, correct, yes. October one. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to try to make it down there at least for a day trip sort of thing. Uh, it's going to be kind of uh, probably the largest uh, air show in the, in the Mid-Atlantic region this, this time of year. So Great. Uh, come one, come all. And Dave, what's up with you? Well, in a couple of weeks, I'll spend four days as a participant in Bombardier's annual air safety stand down here in Wichita. That's two days of hands-on workshops using emergency medical equipment, evacuation from smoke-filled cabins, water ditching exercises, using emergency medical equipment like defibrillators and uh, portable oxygen systems, and in two days of lectures on human performance, aviation psychology, rest cycles, all geared to help the, uh, the working pilot, the business pilot, think better and not just be an automaton who uh, responds to emergencies with whatever he was taught in sim training. So that's coming up the first week of that October. That sounds terrific. I look forward yeah. to hearing more about that. Yeah, me too. And we may want to try to do something wrapped around that, yeah. too, because it is two weeks out. In the interim, since this is going to air just early enough, anybody that's uh, within the vicinity of Bartlesville, Oklahoma, <laughs> may want to trip down there starting Friday this week, September 22nd and 23rd, that's when the 50th annual Tulsa Regional Fly-In kicks off at Frank Phillips Field. That's Bravo Victor Oscar for your database. The Tulsa Regional Fly-In is a fantastic, fantastic little event. Runs two days. It's got a little of everything, antiques, classics, experimentals, warbirds, light sport, biplanes. They'll have some motorcycle exhibits, antique cars, tight forums, the Cessna 120 and 140 Association, 170 Association, they usually have a little operation there. Same thing with the International Swift Association, the Short Wing Piper Club, you name it. They put on a fantastic little fly-in down there, laid back, 
comfortable, very friendly people, good food, good camaraderie. So that starts this Friday at Frank Phillips Field, the Tulsa, the 50th annual Tulsa Regional Fly-In. That's great. Can I stick one last thing in here? I had a nice little piece of news across my desk just before air time. Uh, Patty Wagstaff been picked up for another two years by Cirrus Aircraft as a sponsor. Now, yeah, I, I don't know too. how many of you are familiar with the rigors of being an air show pilot, but these championship grade performers like Patty, you know, they rise and fall on the strength of their sponsorships. Now, Patty's a three-time past national champion, uh, puts on a hell of a show. Uh, Cirrus has been partnered with her for the last couple of years, and they decided to extend the partnership. My hat's off to Cirrus and Patty both. Uh, I, I think they're a good pairing. That's terrific. Yeah. That's terrific. Well, thank you very much, Dave Higdon, uh, Aviation Photography. Uh, DaveHigdon.com is the website. And Jeb Burnside uh, from Aviation Safety Magazine. That is AviationSafetyMagazine.com. Uh, also, AvWeb, AvWeb.com. My name is Jack Hodgson. I can read more about my things at uh, JackHodgson.com. Thank you, guys, and thank everyone for listening. Good night, all. With a crazy bunch of fellows Now I can't eat I've been kicked out of Fratello's I got them adventure blues Them adventure blues Lord help me lose mm, These adventure blues Take it Mr. Rick You can email your suggestions and feedback about this podcast to podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com.